Well, hello there and welcome to part two of our chat with the Lincoln City chairman, Clive Nates. He was so good in the first, we thought we'd get him back for a little bit more. Clive, lovely to see you. Um, how did you find part one, firstly? Grueling. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first one word answer you've given me, thankfully. Um, Clive, we left part one at the end of what I classed, I guess, as the, the Danny and Nikki Cowley era. Um, so let's move on then to, to Michael Appleton. And Michael's role was head coach. So obviously there is, and remains to this day, a lot of debate in football about what is a head coach and what is a manager. How did you come to the realization or the decision that you were going to hire a head coach moving forward? I think as we became a bigger club, we had brought more resources into the club. It was felt that a director of football model was best for us. And remember at that time when Michael Appleton joined, Jez was only a consultant. He wasn't full-time. But what we wanted was that the manager would be more focused on the team. Um, he would have support through a director of football that would help with the running of the football department. Obviously, the manager would still work daily with the likes of medical and sports science side but there would be somebody to help those people, uh, the backroom staff uh, at the club, but the manager wouldn't have those duties. That would be the responsibility of the director of football and also to assist in the on the recruitment side specifically um, because, again, the manager or head coach has a limited amount of time to go out and watch games and you would have a director of football it would be mostly responsible for that area. With regards to the recruitment, now you're on social media, I'm on social media. I know you're, you're not always active in terms of posting, but I presume that you quite often see, uh, well, everything really, but that includes comments from fans. How true or untrue is it that it's not, just the manager that is responsible for signing players, that members of the uh, board, perhaps, or whether it's whether it's Liam, whether it's yourself, play the active role in signing players going forward, and that the head coach has nothing to do with that. Is that just totally unfounded? Yeah, I mean, some of the times when I look at uh, what is written on various of the social media sites. I think I'm, a, you know, looking at some QAnon non-conspiracy conspiracy site, and I don't recognise our club at all. Um, I mean, you know, the the director of football, as I've said, you know, is there to assist the manager to allow him to spend more time uh, with the team uh, on the grass. Um, so, the director of football would work with the recruitment department and with the, the manager or head coach to to bring in players. No player has ever been brought in that, you know, hasn't been given the thumbs up by the manager or head coach. Absolutely 
That has never happened. In fact, and it's something I've actually mentioned on social media on one occasion, is that a couple of times, Sunyana Michael Appleton, we brought in a player that didn't come through uh, the recruitments department. Um, you know, one of those is Chris McGuire, who was a player that obviously had played under Michael, and that was totally Michael's desire to to bring in Chris. Is that one of the more difficult things to get right as a chairman, chief executive, uh, senior director on the board? The relationship between the manager and the director of football, is that one of the most difficult aspects of the all-encompassing role? Yeah, look, I, th I think it, it can be. I mean, you know, the certainly the head coach uh, reports directly through to Liam. Um, there is a reporting uh, through to, to Jez as well. But, you know, everybody has to report to somebody. Um, I ultimately report to the fans and, you know, you've got to manage all, all those relationships. But, you know, some of the suggestions out there that, you know, even around Conor McGrandles, I've seen comments, well, that must be a Liam and Jess signing. I mean, how could anybody, you know, think that just because he's played for us before that somehow, the, you know, Michael would not have been involved in that decision. Um, they're actively involved the regular meetings between not only Michael, but the rest of the coaching staff with the recruitment staff to agree on players that are targets for us and players that we ultimately sign. But is that just social media now? Would we have that at every club? Is it that everyone's got a comment and that the rate of someone's comment on social media and the speed in which it can get back to people at the higher echelons of a football club is now just quicker, that this was always going to happen? Or is it something that you've started to see happen more here? Uh, and that's not me trying to get to any specific point, really. I'm just trying to unpack what you've, you've said a little bit there. Yeah, look, I mean, I look mostly at social media with regard to Lincoln City, but I do look out of interest at uh, other fan message boards. And there's no doubt that there is this belief out there that when you have a director of football, uh, he he makes the decisions as to which player they sign. Maybe in some clubs, they might not consult the manager. I don't know. I think that would be a foolish way to do it, to, to bring in players that a manager or head coach wouldn't want. You know, I, I think that that just defeats the object. Um, I think it is important these days that, you know, to help the manager out, as most clubs do, you do have a director of football and you do have a recruitment department that's specifically out there allowing the manager to do what he should be doing and doing that part of the work. Um, I think it's also important that in this sort of work as a manager, they don't generally last all that long. Uh, in a job. So to allow a manager total authority over bringing in whatever player he wants to bring in, you know, I think uh, is would be problematic. I mean, let's even look at that example of Chris Maguire. 
we knew that he would only be effective as long as Michael was here. So why would you let a manager bring in a whole lot of players that only suit him and, you know, wouldn't be good for the club in the longer term once that manager had moved on? So the podcast timeline at the moment, because as fans may have realised in, in part one, we sort of we're jumping in between uh, the timeline as such and then veering off into other interesting avenues. If I bring it back, Michael Appleton's in charge. It felt almost at the time, and I'm looking at the, the COVID season, if you like, that Michael had built the perfect team. When you look back on that team that he was able to put together, and I say he, but everyone was able to put together, um, is that kind of the blueprint of a team that you would like going forward? Because as I look at it, and I was fortunate enough to attend quite a few of the matches during the COVID season with the with the show and everything that came with that, um, it had pace, it had a good element of youth and experience with it, it had excitement, it had a bit of power in there as well. Um, was that the blueprint for what you would like to see of a Lincoln City team going forward? Well, there were a number of special things that happened that season. Uh, obviously, there was also a salary cap in place. Uh, I think the ability to bring in a Brennan Johnson is maybe a one-off um, to get anything close to that as a loan signing is yeah near to impossible. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things uh, came together that season that, you know, enabled us to be pushing for uh, promotion. It didn't turn out that way. And, uh, you know, I still think that there, that, that it really was a missed opportunity, that we had the chance, but for, in particular, the home form, uh, it was a season where we could have really got uh, in into the top two. There were suggestions that you can get promoted too early. Now, obviously, I guess we, we haven't been promoted to the championship since then, so it's difficult to compare what, what could have happened. But was that ever in your thinking that actually this team might be too young to go up or that Brennan will go back to Forest and, you know, Morgan will go back to, where was Morgan at the time? West Brom. Man City. It was at Man City, of course he was. Yeah, it was at West Brom before, wasn't it? So, you know, was there ever, did it ever cross your mind that actually, oh, we might not, as a club, as a team, we might not be ready for the championship? Or when you say it was a missed opportunity, you mean not only was it a missed opportunity to, you know, lift another trophy, but a missed opportunity to build something in the championship? Yeah, it would have been challenging uh, because, yeah, that team... And maybe even as a club, we weren't ready for the championship. But if you had made the jump, you know, could you have survived and built on that? Yeah, we will never know. Uh, I can say without a doubt, if we do have to make it uh, in one of the forthcoming seasons, we will certainly be in a better position than we would have been at the end of that season. Yeah, and ultimately, Michael left the club after a couple of years. When you look back on that, that two and a half seasons or so in charge, what did you learn from his tenure? You know, it was a, it was a difficult appointment because whoever was coming in was replacing absolute legends. All right, they'd only been with us just over three and a half, well, just over three seasons. 
but what they had achieved was just incredible. And, you know, you've seen how difficult it is to replace a Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger. Teams battle to replace a manager that has been incredibly successful. So I think that, you know, with that appointment, we at least achieved stability. We got within one game of getting promoted to the championship. So I think Michael's appointment was a success, but maybe there was one element of it that was probably the biggest negative, and that was maybe the inability to really relate with fans uh, that obviously Danny and Nicky were just so good at. I think Michael was the right character maybe in a way because of that, because he was so hard to take over from legends. But I think it's something that we have looked at subsequently to far greater extent. We want an individual as our manager or head coach that can relate well with our fans. How difficult is it in this day and age to find uh, a manager that ticks the coaching boxes if you like uh, and the head coach boxes but also has that ability to relate to fans because really if we're being honest gone are the days of the Neil Warnocks and obviously he's, he's not long taken over he's still going and he's a manager now at Aberdeen but gone are the days of those sorts of characters overall aren't they and actually there tends to be a different type of management style going forward so how difficult is it to find a head coach a manager that can relate to fans that that puts a lot of time and effort into the community the supporters the away fans whatever but also that time on the training ground which is so pivotal to providing a good young team that plays the right way yeah it's difficult uh every managerial appointment uh is difficult because you're looking for a manager at a particular point in time the ideal person might not be available at that time. Um, and you see it in the turnover of managers. So, yeah, it's a challenge. So Mark Kennedy comes in after Michael Appleton. Um, what were the reasons for bringing Mark in? And I asked you about what you learned from, from Michael's tenure. I guess what overall did you did you learn? And I realized that we're really sort of being quite vague here because for time we're having to sort of cram everything in. But when you look back on that period with Mark, um, you know, what did you learn yourself? Look, I think every appointment is a learning experience. Uh, all the time we have postmortems on... What happened? What did we get wrong? What can we improve in our manager select committee, which you know meets every couple of months? It's, it's an ongoing process that uh, Jez is involved in in meeting candidates. And yeah, um, I don't think it would be right to maybe highlight exactly specific points that we've learned from each process, but without a doubt, you, you just try to get better and better. It doesn't mean... We won't make mistakes with any of the forthcoming appointments, but I think the process is really, really improving and uh, we're definitely learning from it. With that process of hiring managers, what are you looking for first and foremost? And I guess the obvious answer to that is a winner. 
But, you know, we know just how rigorous, particularly the last process was of, of hiring a manager. When a manager comes to you or when they're sat in front of you in essentially what is a job interview, it could be a chat, but ultimately it's it's an interview for the job. What are you and the and everyone else looking for? All right, so we do have a checklist of what we ideally, ideally are looking for from from the candidates. Um, yeah, you know, there will be those that will be better and tick more boxes in certain areas and less in others. But, you know, it's putting it all together. Um, there are times when different interviews where they've got to make presentations to us, deal with specific areas that we've asked them to come back and, uh, you know, present on. Um, some are very good at that, but they might not be so good at when it comes to actually just answering off the cuff questions. And it's, you know, it's, it's putting together all the different feelings that you're getting from each meeting and, uh, coming to that ultimate conclusion, who's the right person for you. And as I've said, fan engagement, without a doubt, is out there. You want somebody that's really good um, on the grass. Um, I think we definitely want somebody who's all hardworking, who loves the job. You know, it's not just that they're in it because they need to make some money to support the family. We want that manager to have passion for for his job how often does your phone go off and i don't mean just from people in general but from prospective managers whether whether it's the club going through a sticky patch and managers that have maybe reached out to you in the past or connections that you have made or whether the club is looking for someone to replace someone else how often do you get approached by someone saying i think i'm the right man for the job i think i'm the right person for this job yeah, certainly around the time where you're looking for a new manager. Um, without a doubt, Jez and Liam would be the ones that would be front in line in getting, you know, calls or emails, messages from potential candidates. But yeah, I get a few at times and, uh, you know, uh, where you might also get it is there's a rumour that your manager is leaving and suddenly... You know, it just opens up the opportunity for a potential candidate to, you know, approach you or say, hi, I'm still in the background. And yeah, that happens a fair amount of times. So Michael Scubala is named as, as head coach and is now the head coach of this football club. What impressed you about Michael's uh, interviews, about his time, whether it was within futsal whether it was with england whether it was at leeds united what was it about michael that really um caught your eye and stood him out against other candidates yeah so i think it's the varied experience that he's had the long experience obviously starting off you know very young um coaching and uh the way he's progressed in the in different areas um you know, came up against some pretty strong candidates to get the job uh, at Leeds and the experiences that he had there. You know, one of the things we also do is an exceptional amount of reference checking. 
And again, he ticked, yeah, all the boxes from that point of view, from whoever, you know, we contacted to ask about uh, Michael, came back with tremendous references. And that's not only people that might have coached with him, it's players that, you know, he, he has coached as well. Um, and again, a lot of the attributes that uh, I've already mentioned, what we're looking for uh, in, a, in a head coach to work at Lincoln City. Christmas was a tricky time on the pitch, but things seem to have, have turned a little bit of a corner. We've got more attacking options as well. I guess this is all just part of the process, isn't it? This is part of being a football club, being a League One football club. You're going to have injuries. You're going to have times where things aren't going quite as you want them to. But as long as there's an idea that you're moving in the right direction, that's the most important thing. And I presume that's what you've seen so far. Yeah. Um, I was at the EPC this morning. Yeah. So I get, you know, for the first time was able to see, you know, Michael talking, working with the players, but all the reports I get from Liam and Jez, um, you know, have been very positive. Uh, absolutely, it's not, you can't just judge a manager by short-term results. Uh, some of the best managers that English football has known have taken time to, you know, produce uh, the winning football that every club's fans want. Uh, Alex Ferguson, in his fourth season, they were 17th in February, 11 games without a win, lost 5-1 to Manchester City. Still can't believe that uh, he survived that. Unfortunately, he did. <laughs> and then you get, you know, even Everton's most successful manager, Howard Kendall, two and a half years into his reign. Uh, he had already put the, you know, the nucleus of the team together that just a few months later would win the FA Cup and would go on and win the league title and the Cup Winners' Cup 16, month, 16 months later. And yet at a point in December... 1983, if I remember, got the year correctly. They had gone a whole December without scoring a goal, uh, 16th, and yet it all turned around and they went on this incredible run, you know, just uh, a few weeks later. And this is it, Graham Taylor, 12 games without a, or 11 games, I think, before he got his first win uh, at Lincoln City. So you've got to give managers time as long as you can see what's happening in the background. And I think definitely what we've seen in the last three games, uh, even only one of those produced a victory. You know, you can already see uh, the changes that are happening and what we hope will ultimately produce a very successful team on the field. But there might be still more bumps in the road before that happens. We've talked quite a lot about stuff on the pitch. Um, off it, You've been a regular voice calling for an independent regulator within football. And, you know, for those that I guess don't know exactly what an independent regulator will entail, and I imagine that a lot of people watching and listening to this will, but could you just put forward, I guess, your viewpoint as to why you have been so vocal about it over the years? Yeah, um, I think I came to the conclusion that it was necessary, especially through 
getting more involved in attending EFL meetings during the COVID time because they were all on Zoom. And, you know, physically it's hard for me to be over exactly the time that meetings do take place. So just seeing the way the game was run, how clubs interact and how they vote uh, was eye-opening, let's say. And without a doubt, I don't believe um, that whether it's Premier League clubs or EFL clubs can act totally in the best interests of the game. Um, and you need somebody else to help push those clubs in the right direction. Um, I mean, I don't think it's ever great to have government involvement, but I think it's absolutely necessary in this case. Um, I mean, we would have hoped already to have had a deal from the Premier League, which would have seen greater redistribution down to the EFL. Those Premier League clubs cannot decide on how to split the fund, that additional funding that is required for the EFL. So we've had no decision on that. And it's only through the pressure of a potential independent regulator that they've even got as far as they have. Otherwise, there would have been absolutely no chance of any additional redistribution to uh, EFL clubs. Yeah. Richard Masters, the Premier League CEO, and Rick Parry, the EFL CEO, they met at the start of this year, or they appeared in front of a select committee. Were you, um, ple well, I, maybe pleased is the wrong word, but were you, were you satisfied with the outcome of that hearing? Do you think that we eventually will get to the point where there's enough Premier League redistribution money filtering down? to the EFL leagues and how, how valuable, how vital is that to the EFL clubs? Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely vital. Um, you know, and I think the important thing is that it w won't only be redistribution of money. The other side of that, and they will come in absolutely at the same time when it does happen, is that there will have to be greater financial controls across uh, the entire EFL. So we've got a, you know, the ridiculous situation in League One and League Two is that as long as owners are prepared to put in additional money, not only through equity, even through debt funding, then a club can spend as much as it wants. Theoretically, a League One club could have a budget higher than Manchester City. You know, nobody's going to do that, but that just shows the flaws in the current controls that we have. One of the things that this club is regularly praised for is transparency when it comes to financial accounts. Um, I know that Lincoln are often featured on Kieran Maguire's Price of Football podcast as well. He has spoken very positively about what I just said. Um, what, what is the reason for being so transparent on those figures? Because um, certainly for us that um, aren't accountant or finance experts, you look at some figures and you're like, wow, how is, how is the club even still running how is it sustainable could you just give us a bit of an insight into the thinking behind that yeah look um i think it's just the belief that we have uh that we are custodians of the club that uh, ultimately you know 
I might be around for whatever it is, eight, ten years. It's a small blip in the 140-year history of the football club. Fans will be through generations from grandparents to parents to to children and that will continue they you know any person could be a fan for 60 70 80 years and they deserve as much transparency in how we run the club as we can possibly give them you know um, one thing that fans don't ideally like is undisclosed fees but that is the way it runs at the moment so when we have the opportunity, as in the accounts, you know, we try to get that across as much information as we can. Um, I thought it was important for us to put in what our record fee paid and received was, instead of having 75k for Battersby or whoever else it is. And uh, you know, yeah, I, I just think. That's what that's what we that's what we really want to get across to fans. Uh, we'll be open as we possibly can. It's probably still not going to stop all the conspiracy theories, but uh, we'll do our best. There'll always be conspiracy theories. That's uh, that's the way the world is now, I guess. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, Harvey Jabara's contribution should not go unnoticed either, of course, um, and has been a a really integral part in investment to this club over the past few years to be honest could you just talk to us about the relationship we spoke with Landon Donovan on the podcast recently who spoke glowingly about Harvey we know that he's a family man that has fallen in love with this club and this city as well in terms of your relationship with him how uh, important is that going forward and how important is he to this club going forward yeah extremely important I mean you know it was always in our mind that the, or myself and those that came in, you know, post-2016 could only take the club so far that we needed to bring in additional investment. And it was trying to keep that momentum going that Danny and Nikki had brought in their three years and especially the fan base, you know, the attendances uh, at the LNER Stadium. Could we maintain that? And we've tried to do that as long as possible until we could bring in additional investment. Um, and, you know, we've been quite open with that, with talks with various intermediaries. And, you know, as you discussed on the Landon podcast, uh, you know, this Israeli agent, Rafael Geller, is actually going to be coming over for his first visit to Lincoln City and will be at the Fleetwood game. Um, you know, put me in touch with uh, Landon. Uh, I think the Everton connection counted for quite a lot when we had that first conversation. He put me in touch with Harvey. Obviously, it was during the COVID period, so we couldn't meet face to face. There were a lot of Zoom meetings before Harvey, who likes to tick every box, was convinced that uh, we were the club to invest in. And yeah, he's, you know, as we've disclosed in the annual report, he's now the major shareholder. Um, and it's been absolutely vital, uh, the funds that he's brought in and also potentially what he could bring in, in into the future and future connections as well. 
and the United States is a big part of that as well. We know that there's a World Cup on the horizon. Um, you know, how integral is it to build those connections with the states? Because we've seen it, whether you want to use Wrexham as the example, whether you want to use Tom Brady taking over at Birmingham City or becoming a major director at, at Birmingham City as the example, whichever way you want to look at it, the United States has so often proved to be a important connection, a big, obviously a big network to have there as well. But could you just give us a bit of a, a reasoning behind that? Yeah, um, you know, it's like you said, it's a, it's a place where probably 90% of capital coming into the English game is coming from. Certainly the interest is at an absolute high. Um, obviously, we don't quite have uh, the publicity that uh, Brady or Ryan Reynolds would, would bring to a club, but... You know, with San Diego Loyal, we were making some input into into that market, and you know, at least creating some interest there. It's it's an ongoing challenge for us, and something that we are continuing to look at how we can make that uh, more meaningful for for ourselves going forward. Final point, Clive, because you've been very generous with your time. We've covered a heck of a lot over this. First ever two-part We Are Imps podcast as well. Um, Stacey West redevelopment. Uh, is it ticking along as you hoped it would? And, you know, has your mindset with regards to a stadium changed at all? Because I imagine it's something, and I know it's not something that, that we've ever discussed, but I imagine it's something that you've wrestled with over the years, the idea of a, of a new stadium. I know it's been talked about at, at recent or recent over the years fans forums too so where does the Stacey West redevelopment and the idea of a new stadium somewhere in the future align well when I first got involved with the club it certainly seemed as if a potential move to a new stadium was on the horizon I would say at the moment that's not the case I don't believe it will happen in my lifetime um, so everything is about trying to make uh, the LNER Stadium as good as we possibly can. Um, Stacey West development is, is part of that. Obviously, it's going to be fantastic for the foundation, but it's also brought a lot of benefits. Uh, the money that we're saving on water, the improvement in irrigation, the improvement in power, um, networking, a whole lot of things, uh, you know, have been improved. There'll be additional toilet facilities. Uh, and obviously, as we've mentioned, also the potential to increase the capacity um, of the Stacey West stand through uh, standing uh, in that stand. You know, that could also add potentially 600 to 700 seats. And we're continually looking at uh, what we could do in the rest of the stadium. I think a big part, and going back to potential uh, redistribution from the Premier League and greater controls, if that happens, it allows potentially money to be you know, targeted at areas that can improve things, that can make the fan experience a lot better, can improve returns for the club. So, you know, we just got to hope that in the near term, we do get some resolution of that Premier League redistribution 
uh, and that would be you know a, re a really big positive for what we can do to improve the stadium and even make ourselves more competitive yeah fingers crossed indeed Clive it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on this two-part We Are Imps podcast you'll be heading back to South Africa soon um, are you a podcast man in terms of the flight reading books watching films or just getting a bit of shut eye uh, seeing that South Africa to London flights are in at night, uh, I generally try and get a bit of sleep or otherwise I read. Uh, so no, I don't watch movies or podcasts or anything like that. It's sleeping or reading. I like it. Well, safe flight indeed. Clive, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Sam.